Welcome to Art Fictions, and welcome to this week's guest artist, Millie Peck. Millie takes us on a journey from an Alan Akebourne play of mishaps and misfires to her 2D sculptures and drawings of ordinary, everyday objects. Let's get going. Millie Peck, welcome to Art Fictions today. Thank you very much for having me. I mean, I'm super excited, but I'm actually really nervous going back into all this. I've had such a break. And because time is so weird under lockdown, where where are we? What day is it? You know, I know. I feel exactly the same. Uh, it feels very elastic. I sort of feel like I can't really get anything done in a day because time seems to go very fast, but I don't really know what I'm doing most of the time. Yeah, it's a very strange time. Definitely. I am going to try and do a summary of what is a very confusing story that you've chosen. Okay, Taking Steps, a Farce is a play written by Alan Akeburn in 1981, set over three stories in a non-distinct Victorian manor house. The play itself is staged on only one floor. How so, you might wonder? Well, it's extremely confusing with characters on one floor acting out their scene in the same space as characters on another floor acting out their scene. To indicate movement between the floors, there are sloping banisters with two flat staircases indicated on the floor. As for the storyline, Elizabeth is an ex-dancer, you know this because she reminds us constantly, who feels she's trapped in a marriage with keen drinker and apparently hugely successful businessman, Roland. Elizabeth's boring brother Mark is engaged to Kitty, who has left him and is returning, only to leave him again. Then there's the interlopers Tristram, a junior solicitor who continually starts and redirects his sentences, leading to terrible muddles for himself as well as the audience. And lastly, the sly Mr Bainbridge, who is trying to sell the crumbling house to Roland. All takes place on a cold rainy night in February, which is on topic there. Uh, during which the characters ensue an evening of shifting floors, swapping partners, deceptions, misunderstandings and misgivings. Millie, have I missed anything? Yeah, no, that was very good. Good summary. It was very confusing. I sent you a link and I'll have the link available on the podcast notes of a reading of the play. It's definitely a play that I think would make much more sense if you can see it being performed. Yes. I mean, it's ridiculous. Why did you choose this play? <laughs> I've been interested in Alan Inkbourne's work for maybe a couple of years. First, because I was making a lot of work about Foley sound production. Um, I don't know if you know much about it, but for anyone who doesn't, it's the recreation of uh, sound effects in film and TV and radio. And I was doing a show in Scarborough, which is where Alan Inkbourne lives and works now. And... The Stephen Joseph Theatre is there, which he ran for many, many years. And one of his early plays is called Mr. Whatnot, which is basically all around sound. There's actually no dialogue in the play. And a, a lot of the comedy revolves around these dramatic events which are going on in the absence of dialogue. So I was thinking about this and then I started looking at more of his plays and more of the structural aspects of his plays. And this one in particular, I found uh, a great relevance in terms of his use of space. And all of his plays are written to be performed in the round for the most part. So he's very conscious of, of how the physicality of the stage itself is used. And 
I guess this play most specifically, I really enjoyed the fact that it's a play that is across a house of many floors, but that it's all flattened onto one stage. I think about that sense of playing with dimensionality in my work quite a lot, this constant flattening and inflating between the two and the three dimensional. So I felt an affinity with the play for that reason. It's almost like that sort of Cluedo game, Mrs. White in the kitchen with the hammer, you know, instead we've got Mr. Grout at the Bull Hotel with the whatever. But yeah, everything's all flattened like a board game. It also had me thinking about puppet productions. I took my kids when they were young to a couple of performances at the Little Angels Theatre in Islington, just on school trips and stuff like that. And uh, one of the ones that I saw was Fantastic Mr Fox, where the set design opens and folds as the scene changes. So the puppeteers themselves shift between being active and becoming props. One moment they're sort of directing a puppet and the next moment they're a tree or whatever. Switching on, switching off, quite like the light in the play. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think also it's something to do with you're very aware that you are somebody watching a play and that it's all false because of this flattening of the um, stories of the house. And I think that's something that comes very much from the action of a play being performed in the round as well, that it encourages the audience to be complicit in what's going on rather than being the audience versus the performers. You're more involved, I guess, because you can see everything happening from all different angles. Yeah, you can see what's going on in the background, quite like noises off, where you see behind the stage as well as on the stage and that film Birdman I don't know if you've ever seen that yeah there's a similar sense of mayhem Mm. inside outside upside down yeah there's there's also I don't know if you've seen this film the Barbarian Sound Studio it's got Toby Jones in it and it's it's sort of a, a horror film I guess it's not super gruesome but it's very disturbing it's about this sound engineer who gets called up by an Italian production company. This director really wants to work with him. And he actually specialises mainly in in uh, doing uh, foley work for nature documentaries. But for some reason, they've asked him to come and work on this film. So he goes over to Italy. And slowly as the film progresses, he realises that the film is very violent it's very misogynistic he starts getting wrapped up in in this play and he's starting to think I can't actually tell what's real and what's not real so yeah a similar sense of the performance and reality being confused so yeah that's another good film slash play In one way, I suppose, I thought it's almost as if the staging is the lead actor in the play and all the characters themselves are support acts because when you talk about his first play not having any dialogue, I mean, I can understand he'd be the sort of director that would be able to produce something like that. And in this play, the actors do have dialogue, but the dialogue seems to follow or echoes what's going on with the staging. Yeah, totally. I I read a a review about one of the productions and it said something along the lines of the dialogue was kind of secondary. It's really just a device to facilitate the staging and that actually it almost doesn't matter what they're saying. I think it is very much a visual play and because so much of the dialogue is interruptions and miscommunications, you sort of really benefit from that being spoken by different people. It's It's hard to do yourself in your head. It is very hard. Did you want to read out any excerpts? Are you brave enough? I don't know. I probably wouldn't read it out because I'm too shy. (laughs) (laughs) I love the bits with Tristram and Kitty. So as you know, 
Tristram is quite shy and has this stutter and he really stumbles over his words all the time. Mm, mm. There's this lovely bit towards the end in Act 2 where Kitty, who, as he said, is reluctantly in this relationship that she's not mm. sure if she wants to stay in, and suddenly Tristram and Kitty end up together in a room mm. and there's this moment of really precise clarity. So maybe I could read that little um, bit. So, yeah, Kitty's talking about feeling guilty about not knowing what she's doing with her life, not knowing how to make decisions, etc. Tristram says, well, it's not really your problem. You see, the, the way I see it, there are these people in the world who know what they're doing and what they want to do and what they want other people to do, and they expect everyone else to join in or else. And I think that we should all have the right not to do anything at all if we don't want to. And if someone doesn't want to move a muscle ever again and it doesn't do any harm to anyone else, you should leave him sitting there and mind your own business. It's too many organisations and helpful suggestions, and the sooner people are allowed not to do things, the better. If you don't want to get married in a fishing shop, don't you? Sit down for your rights, and don't let anyone start organising you or changing you because you'll find the way you are. Because whoever did make you did a bloody good job. There, sorry, I'm terribly tired, may I sit down? So even in that, he has some funny sort of idiosyncrasies in the way he talks in a slightly backwards way. But Yeah, like sit down for your rights. <laughs> exactly, but... It's the most articulate he's been in the entire play. And it's, I guess it's to emphasise the fact that Tristram and Kitty are apart from these other characters. So, yeah, that was one of my favourite bits. Yeah, this is an example of uh, Tristram and what he's like in the beginning or what he's like normally. So he knocks on the door and Mark, the boring brother, answers the door. Uh, so, sorry, my name's, uh, I, I'm, no, I'm from uh, Trekkit. Oh, what's, what's his name? Sorry, hot. I'm. My name's, uh, well, I'm, I'm here on behalf of, uh, uh, on behalf of Mr. Winthrop, who's been uh, taken ill, you see, uh, not seriously. So I'm here instead. It goes on like that. He's very stop start. Yeah. And which obviously creates problems when there's all these miscommunications, as you know, throughout the play, where some people are mistaken for having tried to commit suicide when actually it was somebody else and so on and so forth. So <laughs> this inability to um, articulate his words is not helpful in these already very mm. complicated um, mm. miscommunications. Yeah. And all that calamity and mayhem kind of reminded me of Buster Keaton and how Buster Keaton, of course, was in silent films and he was able to use staging and propping to say something about the situation. I think those scenes that Buster Keaton created really spoke volumes. And there was certainly one in Steamboat Bill Jr. where there's all this wind blowing and the house wall, the facing wall falls down and Buster Keaton's character is standing up straight and the wall falls down and he goes through the window. So he remains unscathed and he's incredibly yeah. lucky. And then, of course, the absolutely brilliant Steve McQueen picked that up for his 1997 piece Deadpan where he is also standing at the end of this stage piece, this facade falling on him. So he doesn't yeah. get crushed, but Steve McQueen just stands still. So it's not only calamity and endangerment, but it's also a stand of real resilience. And I guess if anything, I was a little bit disappointed with the end of the play. Yeah, me too, actually, because I think it's suggested that Tristram and Kitty make their way out. And I think you're mm. left to kind of assume that they are going to run off together or whatever. But Elizabeth's been this character who's fairly vocal about feeling trapped in her relationship. And um, yeah, you'd really hope that by the end she's got the confidence to leave. But I guess that's a really important thing about lots of his 
plays actually that they always have quite dark elements which are masked really successfully by comedy and I've had a couple of conversations with this director Robin Herford who's worked a lot with Alan Aitbourne and uh, that is a, a really clever thing that Alan Aitbourne does that he can draw you in as the audience and gets you laughing along at something so maybe we're laughing along at Tristram stumbling over his words and then it makes you look back on yourself you know you start realizing that you're laughing along with the other characters who are being cruel to him and it's those moments where you're sort of left to reflect on your own self as as a viewer. But yeah, I agree that it's um, disappointing because you think, oh, I really hope that she leaves and gets gets out of this yeah. marriage. Well, they also don't really communicate either. So, <laughs> yeah. and you know, the house, uh, the whole thing is doomed from the beginning because the house <laughs> is falling down around them yeah. in a sad and sorry way. I suppose the other thing I was disappointed about was that there is something about that sort of calamity and mayhem and miscommunication and things not being explained properly, which seemed very realistic. And the characters didn't seem to come to terms with this is what life is like, you know? Yeah, yeah. But I guess that frustration is quite real. It's quite a human thing, not being able to accept reality. Did you want to say anything else about the book or any particular highlights or observations? The little things which I think really make it are these suggestions which remind you of the play being about three stories. So because the house is so decrepit and falling apart, when Roland is going around with uh, Leslie, the person who's trying to sell the house to him, they do lots of jumping on the floor to see whether it's going to break or not. And at various points like that, there's dust falling. So presumably mm. in production, there'd be dust falling from the ceiling. But obviously for all of the oh, characters... Yeah is the same ceiling so you know when one character's looking up the dust is falling down at the same time like I said I'm sad that we haven't been able to see the same play production and then be able to talk about it because it's all imaginary at this stage um, just reading it but that feeds in very nicely to your work your comment just now because your work is very stage-like and Mm. so it is like a play is about to happen or has just happened and we've missed it somehow so that's a nice (laughs) little connection and we'll get on to that staging effect in a moment but just speaking of shifts and continual changes you originally studied painting and then changed to sculpture for your master's degree so how did that come about? Well I wasn't actually studying painting per se I felt more aligned to painting I guess I used to work a lot with collage, so I often was painting collages that I'd made, if that makes sense. So I'd make collage and paint a copy of the collage and then adjust the scale. So I think in that sense, scale has always been an important factor in my work. And often I'd also be applying these flat collages to three-dimensional objects. And I think that's remained really important. At the crux is always this transference or this slippery space in between two and three dimensional and how you can try and flesh that out. Picked it at times by the odd banana skin. Yeah (laughs) exactly. So you made a decision then to major in or specialise in sculpture? For my master's yeah that was what I specialised in. I know you've chatted to Jordan Baseman, who was running the course at the time, but the way the course was advertised, I guess, was very much with a broad outlook on what sculpture is, what sculpture can be. So it's not limited to making traditional three-dimensional objects. It can involve film and painting, whatever you want, really. So I guess it was that open-mindedness that appealed to me about the sculpture course at the Royal College. Yeah, but you must have had a feeling for objects then. 
Yeah, I mean, I think for the most part, when I make three-dimensional objects, they're still very flat, if that makes yeah, sense. Yeah, that's right. So I'm never quite sure how to describe my work, because I think it still belongs to almost a painterly discourse, more so than a sculptural one. I guess why I think about theatre so much, because that feels like something that's a floaty thing in between, or the stage set as being something that's representative of the three-dimensional space, but is also, by practical needs, largely flat. Yeah, all those sort of uh, cylinder kind of categorizations of art are very much outdated, but we don't have any other language yet. And when I think of the Royal College and their textiles and their print courses, I mean, they're fantastic shows to go to because there's all sorts of, you know, film projection and 3D printing and all sorts of strange things going on that, you know, it's not like going and seeing a painting show as such. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So, Millie, you're a, a sculptor, let's say you make installations, you make, well, you're, you're an artist, you make <laughs> sculptures, installations, two-dimensional wall hangings of drawings and objects, and these are all to a more or less degree 2D images of three dimensions. And just to give listeners an idea of content, your subject seems to be ever-present props in our ordinary lives. So, like a bathtub with a check floor and a nearby tap and water pipe or backlit images of curtains and blinds, hands in gloves, hands with celery, hands <laughs> pushing a shopping trolley or holding on to a public transport strap. So perhaps you could put that description of your work in your own words. Yeah, so I guess certainly over the last few years, my work's usually around the context of the domestic sphere. But I think that's largely also to do with the fact that I often work in response to certain sites that I'm working in or working for. So, for example, the references that you were talking about was to a show that I did at a space called Assembly Point, which doesn't exist anymore, but it was in Peckham in South East London. It used to be a Methodist church, so it's inherently quite theatrical in the architecture of the space. But when I went to visit the space and to talk about the show, I noticed these really old Victorian radiators, which were in the space. And it's not always the case, but for the most part, it's something to do with almost paying homage to the space that you're working in or like some sort of contract or something that you have with the space. So, so yeah, that show at Assembly Point had a lot of aspects within the imagery of the work that were directly referencing the building. So, for example, in one of the wall works, the tiles were the exact size and shape of the tiles in the bathroom that belonged to the gallery. And the artificial piping system, which I made, which sort of ran throughout the space, came directly from one of the old Victorian radiators. And then the design of the bath, for example, is sort of faux Victorian So just staying with that show for a moment, you also had a performance in that space. So you really took your staging (laughs) into uh, staging. Tell me, what was that performance? So it was by an artist called Amelia Barrett, who studied at Slade. And I pretty much left it up to her. But obviously, knowing her work very well, she does mainly performance painting and drawing as well. And she did this three person performance with her father, which was about this kind of fictional family company. And they wore these amazing costumes with black painted hands and all these sheets of paper, which spread throughout the performance across the floor. But it was a funny point for me in some ways because 
I guess a lot of my work is referencing a potential of action or for activity mm. to happen. And the scale of the work being at human scale is intended that as a viewer, when you walk amongst the work, you are essentially part of it. So in some ways, it was quite a funny experience because the interest for me in the work, or maybe why I make the work, is to look for this point of like a latent potential where things are on the cusp and are held back from happening. So by fulfilling that by having a performance was a strange almost the antithesis of that so I still sorry the point of what I'm saying is I still I'm not sure how how that works or whether that works but it was a really interesting experiment and something that I certainly couldn't do myself and I think that I have you know through my interest in Foley sound and film production things like this I'm really interested in things to do with the liveness of performance but it's not it's not something that is directly happening in the work it's always a reference of it when you talk, it reminds me of the idea of being an active audience to something. Your parents were actors or are actors, is that right? Yeah, my my mum's an actor, my dad was too. So I think that's something that I've, <laughs> I've only really acknowledged in the last few years, maybe, that yeah. that's inevitably had quite a big impact, probably more subliminally than I realised, just in terms of things I've been exposed to their background was in theatre initially, both with the Royal Shakespeare Company. And my dad worked with Alan Aikbourne as well. Well, you've obviously grown up very comfortable around stage and theatre. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, funnily, because when when uh, my mum had me, my brother and my sister, she started doing more film and TV because it's much more compatible with bringing up children. And my dad died when I was eight. So I didn't actually see him ever perform, but I've seen images and recordings. But I think maybe it's something to do with the awareness of the behind or like knowing more about the logistical realities of what goes on behind the performance. Uh, you know, just like years and years of helping my mum learn her lines and things like, you know. Yeah, these... and that's awfully sad for your father to have died when you were so young. But how lovely to have those films of him. Yeah, I feel super lucky. I mean, it's amazing. Yeah. And when I was started my research into Alan Aikbourne and I went to the National Theatre Archives because they have this amazing resource which has all these recordings of loads and loads of their productions on film mm. that you can go and watch. Mm. And I'd requested to see two plays called House and Garden. But anyway, you can also request to see other things that they have in their archive. So rehearsal photographs, reviews around things. So um, my dad was in a production of Chorus of Disapproval by Alan Aikbourne and he was playing opposite Imelda Staunton and there's some really lovely photographs that I was able to go and get out and see so um so yeah so let's move on to your most recent work you had a solo exhibition called A Matter of Routine with Vitrine Gallery in Basel in fact, you very neatly bookended that exhibition with two podcasts, this one, of course, but you did start with Emma Cousins' Chats in Lockdown. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, perhaps you could start by telling us about the very strange physical setting for this show. Yeah, sure. Vitrine has two spaces, one of which is in London in Bermondsey Square and their space in Basel. And both of the spaces share something really important in common, which is that as a viewer, you can't enter into the space. So you see the spaces from the outside. So they have these massive glass windows, hence the vitrine name. The space in London is a long, flat, thin space, more like a window display, I guess. But the space in Basel is quite un unlike any other gallery space that I know of. 
and it has a massive underpass that runs uh, on top of the square and it's essentially sandwiched between the underpass and the square and I kind of describe it as a big glass column essentially and it's asymmetrical and long and thin and then it has two areas in the middle which are blocked out so you can rotate around the whole space as a viewer and I guess that was the thing that when I went to visit in the flesh, I thought this is something that cannot be ignored. You know, it's so specific and so strange. It would be very odd for me anyway, to make a show that doesn't acknowledge that in some way. The square has a tram track that wraps around it. So when you're inside the gallery, the tram really neatly wraps around the whole gallery. And I started thinking about how the space could be thought of as a carriage or a vehicle in its own right. It sort of has a similar physicality in terms of being clad in glass and that its orientation actually mimics the direction of the tram line as well. So this was the kind of starting point for the show, which then ended up revolving around the idea of train travel and then I was thinking more about how the train is used as a device in a lot of other forms of art in literature and, and film, but loads of really iconic films and then more recent things as well. I don't know if you've seen um, Snowpiercer, which is directed by Bong Joon-ho, who directed Parasite. I might be wrong, but I think it's based on a, a comic. It's sort of apocalyptic film where various levels of society have been put on this train and the carriages are organised in terms of social class and, and the lower classes, in inverted commas, progress up the train trying to defeat the... Uh, <laughs> so there's this, this is really a direct correlation between the narrative progress and, and the physicality of the train itself. Yeah, and then I'd also seen, coincidentally, quite recently, Matthew Bourne's production of The Red Shoes, which has this very dramatic scene at the end where the protagonist falls under a train and this massive train front comes onto the mm. stage. So uh, I was thinking about the importance of the train in mm. film and literature. Within the space, I essentially treated it like an abstracted train. So at, at one end of the space is this replica of a traditional locomotive train design, which is quite prop-like and is actually a slightly altered replica of this strange... Uh, if, if you're ever in Hackney Central, there's a Paddy Power betting shop and there's this strange kind of relief sign that's above it of this uh, train front and uh, I looked into it a little bit and it's actually to do with a, a pub that used to be there which was called the Railway Tavern I think and then before this there was a pub maybe in the I want to say 17th century which was called the Eight Bells so it's a record of the building's previous uses essentially but it sits very oddly on the high street so anyway that's what sits as almost like a figurehead at the front of the show and then along the sides of the carriage are these linear hanging works. The series is called A Light, which are representative of doorways and, and windows that you might find on different forms of rail transport. The idea of windows was quite funny because windows are something through which you would look out the train to look at the scenery. And in yours, there's sort of scenery of something that you use to look at the scenery. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I think that idea of flipping the point of perspective is always yeah. something that reoccurs in my work where you're simultaneously looking out and looking in and looking at yourself. Mm. 
So coming back to the Vitrine Gallery show, one of the props or the stage pieces you have is called Moquette. This is like a row of seating where people would sit, you know, waiting for some sort of transport, some sort of in-between waiting place. And I assume Moquette is something between a mock-up and a maquette, is it? Or <laughs> It's actually the, um, the type of fabric that's used on the seating. So, you know, the seating on the tube that has all these very iconic patternings the fabric that was originally developed was called moquette like a wool or like a tufted wool and it was developed because it's very resistant and when a pattern's bled into it then it's really good for covering up dirt so yeah on that sculpture I drew by hand all the lines in pencil to create this grid-like pattern which is loosely referencing designs of moquette So Moquette and the train front facade, they seemed like the only pieces that had hard edges. Everything else seemed to have that beautiful, you know, rounded edge. You're obviously making very distinct decisions between those sorts of edgings. Yeah, so I guess that felt like a bit of a shift in my work because I hadn't made anything really chunky, if that's the word, in a while. But again, with both of those objects, they are still very flat in some way. And also physically, I think of them as being almost like a two-dimensional image. And also because of the practicalities of the show and the work having to be transported, everything had to be designed so it could be taken apart some of those works as well. I had recently started working with a marquetry technique, I guess, of cutting different coloured parts of this material called Valchromat, which I've been using more recently, and then slotting them together to create one flat plane. And the work's almost like a jigsaw puzzle or something. Yeah, that's brilliant. I mean, it's like there's a lot of contemporary furniture makers trying to do exactly the same thing. So let's talk about a light. Uh, You know, that's a series of two-dimensional wall objects and they've got beautiful curved edges. Actually, they reminded me of, you know, when you get, well, I never got these, my brother did, but I was completely fascinated with those like aeroplane modeling kits, not by the actual object itself that you had to make, but I loved the little plastic structures that you would get. And then you'd press out all the parts and you'd be left with that sort of skeleton. I hope that's okay that I thought of that yeah. when I saw those pieces. No, that's totally fine. I, when, when I started making them, they were reminding me of that too. But the sort of grid-like forms are based on some drawings I made of a combination of looking at the branding patterns on Mm. different trains and tubes. So usually just really simple, usually quite limited colour palettes. And then also looking at the window and door frame structures of tubes and trains in both Basel and London. So they have that sort of interior construction that grids them in various different ways, but also those beautiful coloured perspex as well. Yeah, and then the perspex is bolted on. So I don't know how well you can tell from the from the photos, but there's about an inch or two distance between black structures and then the perspex. They're not flush. And because the sun obviously rotates around the square, the light falls on, on the different works differently throughout the day. So mm. at certain points, sort of later in the afternoon, you get really amazing shadows which are cast through the work and then the coloured perspex will colour the wall behind or colour the work behind. So I think that's quite quite important as well that they are in themselves viewfinders or or like frames Mm. to look at the other works. I sort of design them so that they can be hung directly on a wall 
but in the in the show itself i hung them from these rubber loops which imitate the straps that you hang on to on the train or the tube well you've got pieces of work in there that reference that directly don't they yeah so so one of the works is called strap hangers so and that's this term that's used to reference commuters essentially called strap hangers which i hadn't heard of before I had to laugh at that title, actually, because it's all one word. So the P and the H come together, which when I first read it, I read it as strafangers. And I thought, gosh, what is that? Oh, you mean strap hangers. Strap hangers. Yeah, that sounds much better, strap hangers. (laughs) Yeah, it's funny, but because I started making this work or thinking about the show just before covid and then obviously we've had this horrendous year of social distancing and so on i mean the whole show essentially is drawing attention to this way of traveling that we have that we really take for granted and then suddenly we were functioning under these new circumstances where traveling on the train is suddenly really dangerous space and it's funny that i was thinking about a lot of these films and and books which have trains in them in their spaces that are full um, uncharacteristically of drama and threat and then suddenly we're actually functioning in a time where the simplicity of being next to someone on a train who's breathing on you is actually a real threat yeah it kind of made me think really differently about what i was making in Freeze magazine, the writer Keto Nido titled the very glowing review of your work as Millie Peck on the Romanticism of Rail Travel. And in a way, I suppose you could apply this idea of romanticism across all of your work, though I did feel, is it just romanticism or is it also slapstick or is it on the edge of some sort of potential calamity or is there a dark edge? So when you talk about this sort of strangeness, actually, that's come into train travel, you know, that absolutely makes sense. And it's also very much when you go to an art exhibition or when you go to the theatre or, you know, another piece of your work will depend scenes from the supermarket these are all places where you group together with people you don't know that has become either impossible or yeah quite threatening yeah very much so you know when I'm watching tv at the moment and there's all these scenes set in bars or in the office these things that you very much took for granted and now it's like I can't even fathom the idea of being in a space where you have Mm. this proximity to people it's really strange and, it, and it's alarming when they touch each other. Yeah, you're like, oh, God, be careful. Yeah, yeah, so. yeah. I have heard you talk about the triumphs of Caesar at Hampton Court yeah. Palace um, by yeah. Andrea Montagna. So this is a series of paintings. How many paintings is it? I think it's eight? I can't remember. Yeah. It's between five and eight, but yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah. So, so like the narrative continues across the different paintings as if it was mm. some sort of cartoon strip. Mm. And perhaps a bit closer to my home anyway uh, is The Rake's Progress by mm. William Hogarth, which is located yeah. at the absolutely gorgeous Please Go If You've Never Been Before John Soane's Museum. In a very loose way, your work does a similar thing, except you don't have the framing. So there, there is no line between one scene and another. One scene falls into another scene, quite like the play where you've got people in different rooms acting yeah. out uh, something in, in one space. Yeah, I mean, I think about that quite a lot. 
the structure of comic books and exactly what you're talking about, the idea of the polyptic of various frames being divided, but the background remains the same. And that allows for the characters or the activity that's going on to pass. And also just thinking about image cells in comic books, how these can be changed in size or position or altered to affect the reading of the narrative quite directly. And I was thinking a lot about this a few years ago when I did this small show at Matt's Gallery, which was the result of a studio award that I'd received and a, a physical structure, uh, which was an imitation of mock Tudor beams, which ran throughout the space. So I was thinking about these beams as being, again, a way of framing the other work. So even though it was referencing a, a real architectural detail, it also became almost like this calligraphic kind of structure that was separating the other works. But I was also thinking about, within comic book terminology, the use of the gutter, which is the space which sits in between the image cells, which is essentially where you as a reader fill in the narrative blanks. And that being this really bountiful space of possibility and potential, because it, it can be a number of things. So I was thinking about that in relation to my wall works, that maybe the more interesting bit is the space that surrounds those and how you might imagine the image continuing. It, it had me wondering about the person that comes in to see the work and how they experience the work. And what do you feel you're laying out for a visitor? This maybe sounds really grand, but I think having the one-to-one -one scale is like an attempt at the work being democratic in some way, because okay. you can have direct access to it as a body, as a person. In democratic in the sense that we're equal here so the work is not overwhelming you and you are not lording it over the work yeah. either yeah and that you can slot quite directly into it for my more sculptural work the reference to a specific character is always very limited so oh. any suggestion of a human body is always quite pared down re reductive um, almost like how it might be within a logo or a graphic that's used to advertise a product or something or like a hand is ungendered it can be anybody's for me the hope is that that keeps the direction of the narrative quite open of how mm. as a viewer you might be able to relate that to your own experience of life rather than mine I definitely yeah. get that sense with the work that it's very accessible because it's just incidental everyday stuff cleaning the bathroom doing the shopping or whatever I want to move on to your influences and I'm going to do that by just going back to the book for a moment there is a section at the back of the book that is titled lighting plot I'll just very briefly read the first few Roland switches on lounge lights Elizabeth switches on attic lamp Elizabeth switches off attic lamp Tristram switches on Roland switches off Mark switches on etc the lighting along with the rest of the staging is like a character like when you see a great film and the music is another character in the film and one of the people that you know you have a image reference on your studio wall is Edward Hopper. Mm. Edward Hopper suddenly become the sort of poster boy of the lockdown because yeah. of what people considered to be his interest or, or his suggestion of lonely characters or lonely people in these quite kind of barren urban environments. But his paintings obviously are very well known for his use of lighting. And I'd actually been making these works for this group show I did at East Bristol Contemporary, where I made these fake lines which were illuminated by LED lights, which were suggesting dawn or dusk or whatever. 
So, yeah, I was thinking about his work a little then. And before my show at Vitrina, I was thinking a lot about his works of cinema and theatre auditoriums and also train carriages, which for me were ones that I hadn't seen so much. Your coffee cup has a spill around it called The Unforgiving Hour in the Vitrine show. That reminded me of, you know, a lonely character, really, like in an Edward Hopper painting. Yeah, the title of that work was actually, I was reading lots of blogs at the time of commuter experiences on trains. And it was this woman who'd written about the experience of traveling at commuter hours. And she described commuter time, whatever that is, 7.30 to 8.30 as as the unforgiving hour. It's this sort of hell-bent, hideous time where you're in Mm. people's armpits. And Mm. uh, so I guess that cut in quite like a what's the word like a like a quite a dumb way is a, a reference to the aftermath of that time and something that we see so often <laughs> exactly so another influence of yours somebody you look to I understand is the German artist Konrad Klefek, who's now in his 80s but he paints everyday objects like irons and sewing machines and typewriters and they're mm. They're almost like, I thought, sexy domestic monuments, you know, they're all curves and perfection and they have colouring that could be from a pharaoh and ball palette or a little green company. But how did you come across his work? The first painting I saw of his in the flesh was when I was in Basel visiting in February and it was part of this Nick Mouse show at the Kunsthalle. And it was a small painting, um, I think it's called L'Amour, Liberté and Art. But I just loved it. I thought it was the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. And they're so hypnotic and kind of sexy, which is really at odds with what they're representing. But yeah, I guess I like the way that he presents these objects as, like you said, like really monumental. And they they feel like buildings almost. They have this really magnificent kind of power. And they reminded me a lot of, I was looking at the time at Art Deco posters, particularly at ones that were relating to the proliferation of aviation travel and transport, you know, trying to um, reboot the economy after the First World War and so on. So the posters were very much designed to glorify these objects of industrial prowess and so on the certain kind of uh, 30s or 40s style of those posters which have these kind of really beautiful painted gradients that have similarities with these paintings even though he was painting at a later time but yeah I mean they're funny as well because they're like this one as well for example the mistress that speaks volumes doesn't it? sexy plumbing I'm not even sure what that is I think it's a shower or a bath handle where you turn the shower on Uh, I guess because he curves all the lines yeah they have this really soft feeling to them or they're really curvaceous and bodily. I was just gonna say I I went through a very short phase of painting pipe structures in galleries like in (laughs) Matt's gallery when they were in Mile End they had a pipe going into a drain or Mm. Frith Street Gallery Mm -hmm. has got all the pipes on the ceilings. I have no idea why they just completely (laughs) fascinated me. (laughs) I guess it's a bit like what we were talking about initially, you know, about seeing the underbelly or the back of what's going on. I actually worked on a a little project for Matt's Gallery's 40th anniversary. I designed and built these bespoke tables that were used for the fundraising event in the gallery, which is going to be their beautiful new space in Nine Elms in Vauxhall, because it was just a building site at the time. I was working very much in uh, the underbelly of the gallery before it becomes a beautiful white cube. 
skipping off quite quickly here to mm. Goldsmiths Centre for Contemporary Art, which is known uh, as Goldsmiths CCA. They mm. have retained a lot of the workings of the space in the yeah. space. Yeah, it's really, really gorgeous. I love that space. Um, I'm sure you will have seen the Solos show recently. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's where you discovered the Chicago Imagists and yeah. Art Green. Yeah, it was just such an amazing show. And I hadn't heard of the Chicago Imagists before I saw that exhibition. I liked his paintings, which are frames within frames. So sort of suggestive of alternative spaces or, or how you might frame another space. Kind of mm. like a, what's it called? A mise en abeam, you know, where there's an image of an image and then that image is of that image. It's sort of like an endless Russian doll. But yeah, he's great. They're all great. Yeah, that looked like a fantastic exhibition. Yeah. So tell me, Millie Peck, what are you reading now or watching now or listening to now? I'm doing a bit of um, dipping and diving with books at the moment, which, to be honest, I'm not I'm I'm someone who cannot multitask at all. So mm. it's not best method for me, but I'm persisting nonetheless. I'm reading a Zadie Smith book at the moment. Okay. It's called Feel Free. It's a collection of essays and she speaks about lots of various political issues, but also she there's a big section on the arts where she talks about various books and a really beautiful essay that's about have you seen the film Anomalisa I can't yes. remember the, the director uh, Charlie Kaufman yeah there's a really great essay about that film which I really loved she relates it a lot to kind of philosophical thinking about the idea of a puppet and I guess particularly about how is it David Thewlis the, the actor who plays the main character mm. how um, everyone is played by the same voice and there's mm. only this character whose whose voice changes and is differentiated from the others. So I think it speaks quite nicely of, you know, a lack of being able to differentiate between things in contemporary age when we're overrun with technology and so on. So I'm reading that. Yeah. Uh, and then another book that I'm reading is totally not related, but it's called American Zoo, A Sociological Safari by David Grazian. And it's... Uh, a kind of investigation of the sociological aspects of visiting a zoo. And I've been thinking a lot about zoos over the last six months or so. Right. This research for new work. Potentially, but mm. I mean, it's something I've been interested in for quite a few years, but I've only sort of recently acknowledged that there's quite a lot of similarities with other things that I'm interested in. Like quite obviously the theatrical aspects of the zoo in terms of these essentially like a series of stages and mm. the kind of elements of fakery which are used to recreate these dioramas and so on. When I came back from uh, Switzerland, I had a, like mm. a two week quarantine and I spent it pretty much entirely reading about the history of zoos <laughs> kind of depressing actually but interesting as well so yes it might resurface at some point okay I hope so because that's yet another meeting place of strangers are you binge watching anything during lockdown oh, I'm binge watching everything under the sun I watched this really amazing film that's on Amazon Prime called Dark Waters okay. with Mark Ruffalo about uh Teflon. heard about about Teflon yeah and uh I was like talking to a friend about it saying like, I mean, maybe I'm just really naive, but I was like, I've never really heard about this scandal before. How is this something that everyone's not permanently horrified by? But then maybe that's just me. Maybe I'm just in the dark. But anyway, I thought that was great. And where can we see your work coming up? You're about to head off, hopefully, to Italy. Yeah, yeah so I'm about to, if everything goes ahead with my visa complications, to Rome to study at the British School at Rome to do the Bridget Riley Fellowship, 
which I'm really looking forward to. And I'm also working on a potential project back in the UK, but that probably won't be until early next year um, Mm. and is also very funding dependent. So I probably can't say much about that at this point. But yeah, mainly just focusing on trying to get to Italy. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Well, congratulations on that residency. COVID and Brexit rules dependent. It'll be brilliant. Yeah, fingers crossed. Well, thank you very much for coming on to Art Fictions today, Millie. Thanks very much for having me. It's been great. Many thanks to all listeners for joining us and also to today's guest artist, Millie Peck. If you'd like to support the series, please subscribe and rate, both of which make a huge difference to access for other listeners. And of course, feel free to get in touch via my Art Fictions 2020 Instagram or my website, gilliannipe.co.uk. It's been really nice, hasn't it? We did go way over, which I always do. Yeah, you've got a horrible editing task ahead of you. Hopefully Dude. some of that is just me like on Google trying to look for images though, so you can <laughs> That's the um, thing. It's always really easy to edit about half an hour. And good luck with your visa. Thanks very much. Yeah. Yeah, hopefully I will be going. I mean I'm I'm sure I will at some point. It's just it might be delayed. I don't know. We'll see. Bureaucracy. I wish you lashings of uh, patience. Thank you very much. <laughs>